We'll uh, continue our series in Genesis with chapter 3. This is where the wheels come off. Starting, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they saw that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. It's always a little odd saying that in the middle of a tragic story. Um, But it is still God's word, and there's still... So much for us to learn about who we are and who he is from it. So let's go in prayer. Father, we pray that you would teach us by your word this morning essential things about who we are, about understanding the way that we relate to you, the way that we understand our own lives, the way that we relate to others. And more than that, we pray that you would teach us the wisdom of the gospel that tells us a new story about the way we could be and, in fact, who we really are if we're in you. So we ask that you would give us uh, wisdom and clarity this morning by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Have you ever had the experience where something happens and then, boom, you immediately respond and immediately regret what you just did. You know, it's kind of like bang, bang, play, right? It's like something happens, and then I snap. I say something back. And before I know it, regret. Uh, Of course, I think every parent knows what that's like. Anybody who's ever had a roommate knows what that's like. Even if you're a kid, 
You know what that's like. You respond immediately, and then it's like, wait a minute, what just, what just happened? Uh, you don't really need to be a Christian to know that there's something wrong with us. You might say it's the starting place of every religion, that there's something wrong with us. There's something deep down that's gone amiss. And the problem, the problem is that we usually try to avoid thinking about it. That's a peculiarly, it's not a uniquely American thing, but we have our own peculiar ways of thinking about that. Uh, we love to make excuses for ourselves. But what's really helpful in the Bible, in the vocabulary of sin that it gives us, is it helps us to deal with the problems not merely as something out there, but something in me. Something that's wrong deep down at the core. And this moment, of course, is really important. We are going to think next week more about the consequences of it, the definitive change even that it means for humanity. But one of the things that we see in it is it's really the paradigm of temptation. It is a scene that gets replayed over and over and over again in every human life. So, one of the things we'll see, the first thing we'll see this morning is what sin is. Really actually understanding a little bit more what, what it really means. Then how we fall into it and how we should deal with it. So, what it is, what sin is, how we fall into it and how we should deal with it. So, what is sin? Uh, we're a Presbyterian church, so we have a catechism, of course, that make, gives you a definition that it is, you know, any breaking of God's law, which is an important truth, right? That is how we know what sin is, because God makes it clear to us. But when we get down to the idea of sin itself, what makes something sinful and what, you know, what, from what isn't sinful, it's really helpful to understand this story and what's going on. So, you notice at the beginning of it that when Satan, the serpent, shows up, he starts by asking, what did God tell you? He starts there, right? With what God had told Adam and Eve. Uh, and it, this goes back to chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And God had said, look, you can eat of every tree, all the trees, except this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Or you might translate it as a tree for the knowledge of good and evil. This one, don't. And the issue at hand is not whether this is some sort of magical poison tree. Uh, in fact, everything about the text tells us it's not. This is not, this is not Snow White, right? This is not about a poisoned apple. It almost certainly wasn't an apple. Um, in the Middle East, but the, uh, it's the Middle East, it's probably a pomegranate or something. But anyway, the, uh, whatever it is, it's not an animal. And it's not magical, right? The point is that they need to learn the knowledge of good and evil. Because the serpent shows up. Like, they need to learn it. The question isn't whether they are going to learn good and evil, it is how they will learn it. Whether they, whether they will learn good and evil by listening to God, or by turning away from him. And that really gets us to, you know, and it's once Satan starts to see an inroad, right, that he makes it clear. He actually 
points out that that is what's at, at stake. And he tells them, no, 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 no. If you do this, you will become like God. That's what he promises. That's his lie. In verse 5, or one of his lies. Verse 5, which all this helps us to understand that sin is really about how we relate to God more than anything else. It actually shows up when they start finger-pointing in verses 10 through 13. You notice that when God shows up, there's a lot of this finger-pointing. And Adam, not so stealthily, points two fingers. He points at Eve, but he also says, you know, uh, who you gave me, remember? You gave me this woman. Adam is blaming God. So the problem with sin then is not, first and foremost, that it twists you around on the inside, although that's true. It isn't that you hurt other people, although that is true. The problem with sin is a relational dynamic, a condition of the heart that sets us over against God. It makes us, in, a, in one sense, sort of masters of the universe. That we know how we should live. And that if we just follow the way that we want to go, it'll be right. You know, the, the, the Proverbs talk about, you know, following the way that is right in your own eyes. The way we, the way we talk about it in modern parlance is following your heart. We talk about, you know, you, you be you. Or at least we used to say that. I don't really know what kids say anymore. But the same ideas have been at work for a long time in Western culture. That if you just follow what's deep down in you, you'll be going the right way. And the Bible warns us against that. That that is a way of thinking about who we are in the world that is ultimately destructive, because it sets us up over and against God. And you see, this is why, look, you can be a good person, a generally good guy, and still be a sinner. Because, the, again, the, fu- the fundamental thing is not whether you, what you do that affects others, whether you're well-adjusted. It is about whether you're in sync with the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Now, it is true, I mean, we should say this, it is true that, of course, if you break God's law of God who is the creator, right, this is where we've been for the last four weeks, thinking about God as a creator, that if you don't listen to him, it will have consequences. For you, it will change you in ways that are not good. It will hurt other people. All that, all that is true. But to say something is sin is primarily to speak in theological terms, primarily to speak about the, how we relate to God. You know, you, so you could be a good person and not believe in God. In one sense. In some generic sense. 
but you have not dealt with the most fundamental question about life. is who is God? Now look, I mean, some, peop- some of us in our sin, you know, play it out in a big way, right? So Satan in Paradise Lost, you know, says he would rather, it's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And most of us aren't that dramatic about it. But functionally live the same way, right? I would rather find my own way. And look, you can be a Christian, you can be a professing Christian and still think this way. At least some of the time. That it would, be, it would just be better if I did it this way. I know I'm supposed to do this other thing, but it's just going to be easier. It, it was, it, this just makes a lot more practical sense for me to do it this way. And so Martin Luther, the great reformer, when he looked at the Ten Commandments, he said, look, you don't break any of them until you break the first one. Have no other gods before me. That really all sin at the end of the day, involves breaking that first commandment. Thinking that we know better than God. Thinking that we have a deeper understanding. And the problem here is that we are made in God's image, right? We are supposed to reflect back the character of God. And so when we turn away from that, it's like reflecting the wind. We're hollow, we're empty. It is a blank image. And that leads us to go after worshiping all kinds of other things. The, the, when the image of God, in other words, is turned around, it starts to become idolatry. It runs after other things. And the deepest, most profound idols are the things that are missing when we miss God. Our sense of comfort our sense of control, our sense of approval. I think those are the most essential things that we're looking for in life is a sense that it's all right, a sense that it's not out of control, a sense that I'm accepted and loved. And when we turn away from God, that is what's missing. And we will run after everything in search of it. Anything that looks like it's going to promise what I need, we will run after. And we will think that we've found it. But we will also avoid anything difficult that threatens that. We will become resentful of those who threaten it. We will disdain those who threaten it. So this is what sin is. It's thinking we know better than God. It is running after other things. Thinking it is better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Now, what does this look like in practice, though? And this is what starts to become clear in this narrative. In fact, even... James, the apostle in the, first, in the New Testament, reflects on this passage and says, look, when each person is tempted and lured and enticed by his own desire, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. 
So we see that sin and the pattern of temptation here begins with desire. So this is what happens. The, the serpent shows up and he asks the question, did God actually say this? It, the Hebrew is actually a, a little odd. It's not even so much a question as a suggestion. It, it might be more accurately translated, surely God didn't say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Yeah, one minister I heard said, this is not so much an argument as an attitude. Right, the Satan brings this kind of suggestion. And of course, Eve buys it, right? She, what, what, one of the things that's so curious is she kind of repeats the command, but she adds to it. She says, yeah, God said, no, God said we could eat of everything except that one tree, and we, we shouldn't even touch it. It's, it's as if she's already starting to pick up the attitude, right, of Satan, that God's withholding. So I can't even touch this thing. And so it begins with this desire, right, this, this attitude. And you know what this is like because you've heard plenty of people say this about all kinds of things, right? And, and sometimes that suggestion, surely you don't believe this. Surely you don't believe that. Sometimes it, it comes across as educated and enlightened. Surely you don't believe that, right? Sometimes it comes across as sort of common sense and tough-mindedness. Surely, surely you don't believe that. Sometimes it sounds offended. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think that, would you? Or sometimes it sounds surprised. <laughs> you, don't, you don't think that, right? Whatever it is, right, that, there's all kinds of different ways it comes across, but that it begins with that suggestion, and it preys on those desires for approval, for control, for comfort, right? Because you don't want to be the fool. You don't want to be the person that is wrong, that looks like they're, they don't know what's going on. And so almost always, in fact, maybe always, <laughs> when this suggestion comes, it has the sting of anger or fear or shame. That suggestion that surely you don't believe that always comes by preying on our worst. Because we wouldn't want to look like we're wrong. We wouldn't want to look like we're silly. We wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of this issue. The excuses go on and on and on. But it preys on some desire, some profound desire that creeps in. And then it leads to a lie. You see, that's exactly what Satan does, right? He gives the suggestion first, surely you don't. But then he tells them a flat-out lie. Once he sees he's got his foot in the door, says, surely you won't die. In fact, if you eat of it, you'll become like God. You see, because we, <laughs> our beliefs are always motivated. We believe what is convenient to what we already want. You know this is true. It's an election year. You know it's true. We want to believe what we want to be true. So we will fall for all kinds of poor logic, terrible arguments, terrible points. And look, this is on equal opportunity offenders on each side. 
But it's, it's, so it's true in that kind of public discourse, but it's also true in our own lives. It is true about my day in and day out routine, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's, it, it's okay if I do this, right? Because I just need to blow off some steam. I just really need to be distracted for a little while. Any kind of logic we are willing to accept if it justifies what we already want. And while we flatter ourselves thinking that we are clear-minded, the truth of the matter is just the opposite. That we almost never believe the truth about something that doesn't reinforce what we want. And the tragedy, of course, of all this is that Satan... Adam and Eve have let Satan take the place of God. The one who is defining what knowledge of good and evil is, who's imparting knowledge of good and evil, is Satan himself. Rather than listening to God, they listen to him. And his lies are about the character of God, as they always are. That God's withholding. You could have so much more. And so, as, uh, as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, right, at this moment, a terrible lie came into the world, and it would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children that God doesn't love me. That's the lie, isn't it? At its most basic, that God doesn't love me. And of course, once we believe the lie, then it leads to the action. Once you've justified it in your mind, it's only a matter of time, isn't it? Or opportunity. Till sin is realized. That's one of the reasons why it, you know, for, there are plenty of Christians who I know try to avoid situations where they know they're going to do the wrong thing. And look, there's a time to say, I don't think I need to go there. I don't think I should do that. Maybe I need a filter on my computer or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever kinds of, whatever kinds of uh, situational roadblocks you put up. There's a time to do that. But that is not dealing with the sin, is it? Because until you've gone backwards and started to deal with the lies that we believe in our heart, desires below that won't really change. It's only a matter of time. And of course, Adam is right here, by the way. Did you notice this? Uh, <laughs> she t- it, you know, Eve is the one having this whole conversation. The guy who actually got the message directly from God is just standing there. Twiddling his thumbs, watching what goes down, right? Uh, not speaking up. Because the same problem is at work in Adam as it is in Eve. It's no different. He is buying into the lie just as much as she is. So, what are we going to do about it? 
Right? If sin takes this path of desire, lies, and action, what do we do? The answer starts to come in verse 9. Because when God shows up, what does he do? Does he show up crashing through the trees, right? I'd say crashing through the wall, but there's probably no wall. Crashing through the trees. You know what you've done. What does God say? Where are you? Is this a mystery to God? Does God not know where they are? No. God knows where they are. It's not really a question, right? It's an invitation. When God shows up and says, where are you? It is an invitation for them to engage with him. To start to reveal the truth about what they've done. To confront the lies that are beneath it. And to start to be honest about their desires that have gone wrong. And what's fascinating about all this is that God still, yes, he confronts their actions and there is consequences for it. And we are going to, again, see more of that next week. There are consequences for those actions. But God doesn't let the lies stand because God still provides for them. Even in the midst of judgment, he provides them clothes, a sacrifice, a promise. We'll see more of that next week. But God knows that the deeper motives are still there. And in some ways, it takes the whole Bible to see where to go with all this. Because if you read through the Old Testament, it's not exactly ever onward, ever upward. If anything, the story is the opposite of deeper and more profound problems coming. But then when Jesus shows up, the funniest thing happens. If you look at Matthew 4, Jesus begins his ministry by meeting Satan. Just the way Adam did. And Satan tries the same old strategies. Jesus had been fasting, so he goes after his most base desires, right, and tries to convince him uh, to, to, run, to follow his desires for food. He goes after God's word and God's character. And then he tries to encourage Jesus to take a different path of the one he knows he should take. But Jesus, unlike Adam, refuses. In fact, over and over again, he unmasks what Satan is doing, exposing what it is. And, in fact, and to the very end, even at the end of Jesus' life, in Matthew 26, we see that Jesus recognizes the temptation to, to go the other way, despite what it will all cost, and he still follows the way that he's called to, to the cross. And so it's fascinating in the book of Hebrews, reflecting on what Jesus has done, we are told that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I used to be very confused about this passage, thinking, well, okay, I get that Jesus was tempted. But Jesus doesn't have a sinful nature like me. 
But then it dawned on me that Jesus' whole life was a temptation. The whole way that he lived. You know, look, my deal is I usually either give in to temptation or the situation changes and I'm like, you know, like, all right, that's, that's over with. On to the next thing. So, but Jesus' whole life was a temptation to give up on the way that God had called him. That Jesus had persisted to the end. Has stood up against temptation even when it cost him his very own life. And Jesus never gave in. And isn't that what we really want? Is somebody like Jesus? You see, if you want to know how to change your behavior, you got to start digging into the lies that you believe about God's character. And if you want to really get at the root of those lies, you got to deal with what you really want in life. you got to deal with your desires. And what Jesus does is unmask all those lies about God's character. Because Jesus is the one who would go to the very end for you. Do you believe that God's withholding? I know you do. Because I do sometimes. But God did not withhold his own son for you. God himself came in the flesh to give up his life for you. To suffer and to die. To endure temptation. To endure everything that the human condition involves. God did all of that for you. Is God withholding? Does God not want what's best for you? Would he endure hell itself for you? And still be withholding? No! God wants everything for you. Wants the very best for you. And that, once you understand that, you can start to dig down into those desires that are so deep. Are you looking for comfort? Are you looking for it in all different places? Then look to Jesus. Because God promises that in Christ, and he has proven it by giving his son, that you will have every comfort that you could ever want. Maybe not tomorrow, but it is guaranteed in the end. Do you struggle with control? Some of us do. Do you desperately want to know that life's going to be okay, that you're going to be able to figure it all out? Well, guess what? At the cross, God proves that he's always in control, that he was in control at the very beginning. And again, while we don't know what tomorrow brings, we know what the end holds. That nothing is out of God's control and you can never be plucked from his hand. Are you desperate for approval? Are you desperately looking to know that you're accepted? That you're loved? Then there's nowhere else you can go to find the kind of comfort, control, approval that you crave than the cross. Because at the cross, God showed us that even despite our failings, He loves us 
and will do whatever it takes to keep us. If you want to start dealing with sin in your life, the only place to start is at the cross. If you want to deal with sin that is active in your life, you need to start to confront the lies that you believe about God's character with the evidence of the cross. You need to start dealing with the deepest desires of your heart by seeing that God has met all of them by giving His Son to bring you back. Let's pray. Father, we, we long for so many things. We are desperate for comfort, we're desperate for control, we're desperate for approval. Because we have turned away from you, left to ourselves, we are hollow. But you have not left us that way. We praise you that you have sent your son, that you've given him for us so that we have evidence even now in the risen body of Jesus in heaven in his hands and in his side that your love never fails that nothing is out of your control and that all of your fatherly love is coming to us give us strength to deal with the lies that we believe about you expose them with the light of Jesus and teach us to desire all of our approval, comfort, longing for control in you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.